Hello, this is Quad. Welcome back to another episode of MD PhD podcast. In today's episode, I have invited my classmate Alexis to talk about um, her journey, uh, what she's going through in school, and also a lot about reproductive um, health. And now I'm recording this part of the podcast after having talked to her. I'm very moved by um, by our conversation because she's just so passionate about um, a lot of topics, and she wants to do good, and she wants to, you know, deliver the message, um, health message, healthcare message, uh, women's empowerment message, all the stuff that she's passionate about. She just wants to communicate that, and I can feel from the way she talks that she cares and and I'm, I'm just moved you know so i hope you enjoyed this conversation and uh again this kind of topic can be charged especially um today but she just you know wanted to communicate and she did a fantastic job at talking about so many things and i learned a lot and again and again i'm just very thankful to have her on this show so i hope you enjoy today's episode It's 1 a.m. And yesterday, I wanted to start the podcast because I was reading paper and I want to deliver this complicated paper in an easy way to the world. And I'm glad that I used Anchor.fm because I went to their website, made an account, made a recording, and boom, boom, bam, I have my first podcast. And tonight, I finished my second podcast with Anchor. So if you want to tell the world something that you're passionate about, Download the free Anchor app or go to the anchor.fm to get started. Okay, so three, two. Hi, Alexis. Hey, Quat. How are you doing? I'm good. How about you? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. And uh, today, um, my classmate Alexis is here. She's going to be the uh, third guest of this podcast. And... Um, we want to talk about just in general uh, about Alexis and also um, about reproductive health. Is that what we're going to do today? That sounds good. Okay. Okay. You sound like a doctor to me already. Very professional. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, so um, Alexis, um, can you tell us a little bit about um, your background? I think people are going to be interested in who you are. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in Northern California mm -hmm. and I um, then eventually after high school went to college at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana mm -hmm. and I studied biology and a supplementary major called peace studies. What's that? Uh, <laughs> it's <the study laughs> of, yeah a lot of people ask so it is what it sounds like it's the study of peace but uh, wrapped into that are um, lectures and classes and projects from a variety of fields. It's a really interdisciplinary major at Notre Dame. So I took sociology classes, anthropology classes, theology classes, philosophy classes. I took a business class, all that were relevant to the study of peace and conflict. And it was wonderful. I learned so much. And for those of you who have not taken peace studies, how, what's your pitch of that major? I'm a freshman. I want to decide what I want to take. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's an easy one to pitch because it's relevant to everything. Um, when you, I, I think it's funny that the the major is named peace studies because I think a more accurate reflective name might be conflict management studies, but that doesn't sound very good. And so I think it's called peace studies because that's what we're working towards. But if you think about it, conflict is a part of all of our lives. And, you know, a, a big theme in my studies and peace studies in my classes that I took was that, you know, you're not working for peace to achieve peace. You're not like working for something that you don't have. Achieving a state of peace is really actually just managing conflict well. And that frame shift that I was able to undergo as an undergraduate, I think has really enabled me to see conflicts, whether they be interpersonal conflicts, professional conflicts, larger moral conflicts that I experience or observe in a more positive and generative light. Because the question is not how can we get rid of the conflict, but rather how can we manage this conflict well and what can be gained from it? So I, I think for anyone, if you're interested in science and medicine, as I imagine your podcast listeners are or not, um, considering looking into peace and conflict studies classes could be really interesting and helpful. I'm going to switch that major. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically, from what I know, what I, what I understand is, instead of uh, avoiding it, it's more of avoiding conflict. It's more of uh, um, being pragmatic about its outcomes and making trade-offs between what's lost, what's gained, etc., and uh, kind of setting an equilibrium with all the parties or all the elements. Is that? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely part of it. And I think another part of it that is really exciting is the imaginative part of it, right? What's that? Transforming conflict, like you said, can involve, you know, long um, discernments about pros and cons and trade-offs. And we can think about conflict resolution in a transactional way like that. And we can also think about conflict resolution um, using our imaginations. And there was a scholar at Notre Dame who actually kind of start, not started the peace studies program, but um, really his thought helped shape it. And his name is John Paul Lederach. And he kind of coined this term, the moral imagination. And he coined it because in his work in the world, you know, helping people come to peace agreements on the international and national level, he realized, you know, to solve a conflict, quote, quote unquote, or to manage a conflict well, you need to use your imagination. You need to imagine a circumstance that hasn't yet been born into existence. Wow. So I think that, you know, it's important when you think about dealing with conflict well, and I'm yeah. no expert, I think life is the greatest teacher about dealing with conflict. So I assume when I'm you know, 90, God willing, I live that long, I'd have hmm. a lot more wisdom to share. But I think to hold that with your pros and cons list and the ways yeah. we tend to quantify, you know, conflict or hard decisions with our imagination can be a really productive and great way to go about it. That's cool. It's like um, peace entrepreneur, right? It's like <laughs> coming up with a product or uh, in this case, product is going to be a logic or algorithm or rules, right? That 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 introduces like win-win to all the parties here. That's that's a really cool way of thinking about like conflict resolution. Wow. Yeah, 
I'm shocked. <laughs> I don't know if I can keep, continue with uh, medicine well, stuff because this I, is the kind of this is deep. Wow, I'm changed. Yeah, that's that's very kind of you to say. But I also think it's it's really cool to think about wow. it in the realm of medicine, but also like in the realm of our daily lives, right? Because yeah. doctors are humans, right? Patients are humans. We bring with us to our work, whether we like it or not, our human experiences, and so. I think for anyone going into the realm of healthcare or any person being able to, you know, use your imagination and the conflicts you face in and outside of your work can help you be a more effective caregiver. Yeah. And then I just thought about something, maybe somebody's doing it, but there, I can imagine there's a field of medicine whose um, role is to come up with a cool, like uh, uh, this kind of like entrepreneurship in uh uh, in, you know, habit changing or basically coming up with a new ways to incentivize patient to do X or not do X or take this, you know, exercise, go to this rehabilitation, whatever it is, basically a, a way to enhance the treatment um, protocol. You know what I'm talking about? Like sometimes you incentivize people to go to exercise because you get this kind of points or, you know, you want patients to do this or that or not do X and Y. Um, maybe there are better way of, you know, accomplishing that by coming up with a smarter, um, I guess, a resolution, right? Not conflict in this case, but like problem resolution. Yeah, you know what I'm I do. I think I do. Like in terms of if you want, I mean, I, you can also view this as a conflict, right? Because yeah. if a patient, I, I really hate in medicine that we have to use the word or many people do use the word non-compliant, right? Yeah, yeah. Because it sounds like this patient is like, you know, purposefully not following right. what is in their best interest. But the thing is, whatever that patient is doing, they're doing for a reason, right? There's right. reasons why they're doing that. And some of the doctors that inspire me, I've seen in their approaches that they approach the patient where the patient is at, right? And if there's a problem with, you know, following a certain recommendation, that's not a time to chart that as patient is non-compliant, but that's an opportunity to be a healer and a partner in that patient's care in a more profound way, right? Because yeah, yeah. that patient is struggling with something to begin with, and they're struggling with something else that's making it, or a multitude of other things, that's making it harder for them to address the struggle that brought them into the hospital or the doctor's office, or that makes their vital signs dangerous for them. And so- if you then see your job as partnering with them on those other issues, and that also might take right partnering with other professionals like social workers or um, nurses, or you know, the list goes on of people, oh. dietitians, family members. If you see your role in that larger way, I think you have just a greater potential to help that person. Wow, I think that's really cool. Now I can look at this problem or conflict resolution as a um, it, it, now, now the now the concept of concept conflict resolution generalized with um, other problems. You know, like we can now look at that with the same way of uh, leverage and you know um, entrepreneurship, coming up with a good resolution and all that stuff. And one more thing I wanted to ask you about the the peace um, peace and all this thing we're talking about, which is um, the leadership. Do you, do you have um, or leadership or role model, all that? 
Do you have any one that you admire and you want to be like somebody that um that that, that influences you in a in a significant way? That's a great question. I feel like I have so many people that inspire me, and I think not the least of whom are my close friends in my mm. life, and a lot of those people are my age or younger or just slightly older. And I feel blessed to have friends that I think all have unique strengths and, you know, navigate the world in a way that inspires me. And I could probably spend the rest of our time together talking about each one and, and talking about what they've taught me. Hmm. But I think that, I don't know, I've, and in addition to friends, I've learned from I don't even know how to start approaching this question because I think I'm just a sum of the things I've learned. Mm. So like absorbing lots of uh, <laughs> uh, uh, inspirations and goods and all these things from people around you, like your your peers, your classmates, your professors, TAs, and all these things. You're, you yeah. Know, makes sense. Makes sense. By the way, I heard that you are an athlete. <laughs> from whom did you hear that? <laughs> uh, I don't remember. It's just maybe the birds. But okay. um, can you tell me about stuff you do I heard that you do unique sports I I mean I think what is unique about the sports I do is that I like to run really long distances how long and so I run ultra marathons which is anything above 26.2 miles <laughs> wow yeah so I've done um several different distances above that um like marker mm-hmm. and it is, it's been such a beautiful part of my life. I think, first of all, it's important to acknowledge that I've gotten to do these things because I'm able-bodied, which mm-hmm. is no choice of my own and nothing that I earned, right? I was just given. And, but with that gift of being able to run, um, I found just a lot of peace and meaning and fulfillment in challenging myself to run longer distances and then kind of exceed what I thought was possible for me. And to do that with joy has been um, a a really important part of my life and a practice that has grounded me even when I'm not doing it. So how is it like to, like, what's the longest distance you've run? The longest distance I've run is a hundred miles. Wow. And, and like, you, you have to stop, right? Am I, or no? <laughs> yeah, you definitely need, you don't, if, I mean, people have different strategies for running an 100 mile race. Some people uh, prefer to take actual substantial breaks. I don't. <laughs> I kind of feel like if I stop, wow. my body is going to tighten up. So my breaks were pretty short, but um, I got really lucky in that this kind of goes back to my friends who inspire Mm me. One of my closest friends, Michelle, she, um, well, actually this is kind of a longer story because for a variety of reasons that I'm happy to go into when I signed up for this race, I didn't tell anyone I was doing it. And how old were you? Um, this was two years ago. Okay. Yeah. Um, I didn't tell anyone I was doing it. And so I wanted to, when it was about three weeks before the race, um, I started to tell people. Um, before then, I had told my best friend Cheryl, but um, <laughs> <laughs> she. But I, most people didn't know, and I, I wanted to tell my other best friends uh, shortly thereafter. And so, I remember texting my 
closer to Michelle and saying, hey, I just want to let you know this upcoming weekend, I'm going to be running overnight for both days and just want to let you know. And she responded within five minutes with a voice note. She's like, hey, I'm ready to book tickets. I'm going to come. I'm going to support (laughs) you. I'm going to be your crew. And I was in the UK at the time. Like I was living in England and she was in the United States and it just wasn't a question for her. She's like, oh no, I'm coming. Like, you're not doing this alone. So she came, she learned to drive on the other side of the road and met me at all of the, um, like the race had rules of exactly of where you can meet the runners. And she met me and cheered me on and um, brought several other of my um, friends at Oxford with her and just coordinated the most supportive um accompaniment group for me through the night and so it was definitely one of the most beautiful well two of the most beautiful days of my life (laughs) and and that run so you started at like what time so i started at let's see the race started at 10 a.m yeah okay and then when did you finish i finished i think let's see i finished do you feel like it was evening you finished in the morning? No, no. I finished really early the next morning, just as the sun was rising. I think wow. I finished just before 5 a.m. Wait, so you just like... Or no, just after 5 a.m. That's right. So you were running and sometimes walk a little bit, rest a little bit, short break, and then you just yeah. keep going forward. Is that what it is? Yeah. I mean, it was kind of crazy because, you know, you start and you're running yeah. and you, you run, say you, for me, I ran like 35 miles and I thought, Wow. I'm tired, but I've got 65 more miles to go. So really like when you do these races, mm-hmm. I it, it is your mind more than your body. Your body has to be at a certain point, but once you get to that physical fitness level, yeah. your mind becomes the strongest muscle you have. Because wow. and, and 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 do you like don't you run out of energy? Like do you do you eat during Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Like it's it's funny. It's kind of a an interesting um, art and science of how you eat and drink when you're doing one of these races, because yeah. everyone's body's different, as you know, and you kind of test things out in your practice runs. Like the I longest see. run I did in training for the race was 62 miles. And so I, I practiced eating different things and seeing how my body reacted to it. And then on race day, after about, you know, <laughs> mile 60 or so, you really don't want to eat anything. <laughs> your body is just in full blown what is going on mode. And that's when it's really important to like have a plan, right? Because you have to fall back on something you decided before be- because not only is your body being really tired, but your brain, which is a part of your body, starts to not work in the way it usually does, which for me was actually a really cool experience because you part, part of it is that you, you do, I should say, I did hallucinate a few times at the end of the run. I would see anytime I saw a light, I thought it was a bunny. And then I quickly realized that they weren't bunnies. They were just shapes. My brain was creating, which I thought was pretty cool, but also must be hungry. (laughs) I think I just like bunnies and I think it was dark. And I mean, I don't eat, I don't eat rabbits. So Yeah, but um, I think it was dark and it made it less scary just to imagine that anything was like a a cute little bunny. But also you don't have the capacity in your brain to think about a lot of things because Mm -hmm. everything is just on lower operation mode. And the things that remain are the things for me that I realized are my 
my core truths in life, right? Mm. All I could really think about were the people that inspire me, the people I love, you know, the purpose of life, like mm-hmm. as, as I see it, everyone mm-hmm. has a different view on that, but mm-hmm. I had those things very clearly. I tried to do a math problem for fun and I couldn't <laughs> do it. Like I, I tried to do a simple addition problem just to check my brain. Cause yeah. I was, you know, being a science nerd, I was like, oh wow. Like I'm, I'm past the point that I can use my glycogen stores. So now, you know, I was like thinking about all those yeah. things yeah. and yeah. I tried to do those math problems and couldn't do it. But in terms of like thinking about why am I on this earth? Why am I here? That was still there. When thinking about my, the people I love in my life, all those people were still there. All the words they said were still there. All the things that give me energy were still there, which is an experience I wish everyone could have. It was, I felt very lucky to experience that. And in that whole process, um, physically speaking, um, not mentally, but physically, like what are the most painful things? Like, is it the, your knee, your skin, your, you know, your neck? What are some of the like painful physical things? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I think in the beginning of the race, um, you start like by beginning, I mean like miles 30 to 60, you have certain points of your body that have just been rubbed by your clothes too much and you have to make kind of adjustments and whatnot and you get little blisters and things like that and so i kept um i wore earrings so that i could pop my blisters along the wow, way wow earring <laughs> yeah it's a, it was oh a little God. trick that w- proved to be very helpful because i didn't want to stop for too long yeah. to avoid my body you know freezing up and so i, I just want to take care of those things pretty quickly um and then i think later in the race your your body just becomes like and I mean, miles 60 to 85, like really, st- you start to feel stiffer, you know, you start to feel like you're, you're really pulling your whole weight. Um, and it's dark too. And I, I'm a pretty clumsy person quat. So I was, you know, falling left and right. And it was fine. Wow. I was laughing a lot about it. It was pretty funny. Um, Cause I was like, man, I just, you know, I, there were, there are the trail I did it in the UK, it, it was along a river and there were little river gates on the walking path. And I would just run into a gate and fall. And I just wow. thought that's hilarious. It's <laughs> like, unusual. Just, no, I mean, it's pretty usual if you've run 80 miles, I think, and you're in the dark of night. I, and like, I mean, maybe it is unusual, probably it didn't happen to many people, but I just thought it was funny. And I, I wish mean, it's, it's unusual if you're like, just every day, you know, you're not running, yeah. you know, yeah. you, you won't yeah. hit a, hit, hit anything. Right, right. And so at that point, you kind of just, again, your mindset is yeah. everything. As soon as you, if I, during that part of the race said, let any negative thought or any thought of doubt in myself enter my brain, it would have been over, right? Because yeah. your body is only telling you like, okay, we have not done this before. This is we are beyond the comfort zone by miles and miles and miles and miles. So you can't, you really have to be focused on the things that, that you feel strength from and the things that you feel possibility from. And then the end of the race, like I remember the last five miles, I was, I was going so fast. I was so excited. <laughs> I, the sun had just risen or was about to rise. So I, I was able to turn off my headlamp. And I just kept thinking like, you ran 95 miles, girl, like you've got this, this is amazing. And 
like I said, I had just all of my, my loved ones. I felt them with me in my body. And I, it was kind of just fun to like speed up at the end and meet everyone who is waiting for me. And how's it like to finish? And how does the next day feel like? <laughs> Finishing was amazing. It's, it's kind of funny. It's, it's weird to stop running after you've been, I think I ran for like 19 hours and 40 something minutes. Wow. It's weird to stop. <laughs> You're like, do I need to do a couple more miles? You know, I see. Um, but it was so joyful. As I said, I had an amazing little support crew and they were so happy for me and showered me with so much love. Um, and I just, I felt like I was just a part of a big team and I happened to be the one running, but everyone else was in it with me. And then the day after, you know, you just, I remember I had to walk to class and. Wait, you went to class the day after? Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> um, I, I walked to class and the walk usually took me about seven minutes. And I remember allotting 30 minutes and I'm really glad I did because I just took my steps so slowly and kind of did not want to speed up or go fast at all because I was definitely in a more sore and by that I mean very sore state but walking is helpful when you're at that point and now I have a like one selfish question which is <laughs> I heard that if you have a let's say a joint problem uh -huh. I hear that if you overuse it like beyond the limit uh -huh. the, the joints start to I don't know if this is true or not but what I hear is these joints start to regenerate and improve so that overall you heal these like damaged joints. Have you had any like injury before doing this kind of crazy run and after you go through crazy, like fixing regeneration or whatever, and then you, you, you know, those things go away. Have you had those experience? I have not, I cannot okay. speak to that. I think overall everyone's body is really different. I don't know about that theory, but I'm a big proponent of if you're starting to feel an injury, okay, like stop because you know sometimes maybe that does happen for some people, but I think really being fiercely protective of your rest and of your relationship with your body and what it's communicating to you is super important. If you at least if you want to be an endurance athlete for any yeah. significant period of time. I need to take that in. I think I'm just having a wishful thinking because I have injuries here and there, you know, and uh, there's no, sometimes some of the injuries won't fix itself. Yeah. Even if you stretch, it's like not helpful. Right. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Injuries are so hard, right? Because yeah. if you, if you're someone that likes to live in the present, it's awful to miss one workout and it's awful to miss a week of workouts. Yes. I always try and remember that, you know, taking two weeks off can save you two months of injury, right? Or taking six weeks off could save you six months. Six weeks year. off. <laughs> it's scary for us, right? Because yeah. we're creatures of habit. And especially if you're someone, and I, I, I can be this way that likes to have control over my schedule and likes to really keep myself disciplined or at least convince myself that I'm being disciplined. It can be really hard, like you're being lazy or wasting, you know, time you should be um, working towards a goal. But I think it's so important to think about your rest in the same way that you think about your training, because your body is the only body you've got. And I think we'd all do better just to kind of be more aware of what it's telling us. 
Makes sense. One of the um, one of the greatest martial artists out there, the you know he he say that a good training, like good sparring, good sessions, um, usually you know it's like seventy percent because if you go too much and you do let's say three and then you take two off because you have to rest otherwise you can't move, mm. and overall the the area under the curve of how much yeah. work you put in or growth is actually less than if you did a seventy percent. Let's say six days out of the seven days. Yeah. Um, so that reminds me of that. And yeah. to transition into women's health, are there difference between uh, men and women in terms of how uh, um, in this long distance running? I am so glad you asked that, Quad, because this is one of my favorite topics. Um, women are really good at ultra marathons. Just how good statistically i don't know anything about anything so I, all i know is this all i know is the fastest mile runner male and female the different there's this there's time difference and then i i remember that time difference changed depending on the distance that's all i know mm. Mm. so okay so essentially um, you're right in that like there are so if you think about short distance races we know that physiologically speaking, um, people that are born with, you know, the biological sex understanding of male, they will finish faster than people who are biologically chromosomally female, right? But as distances get greater, and as you go into the territory of, you know, 50 miles, 100 miles, 200 miles, what you see is that a greater percentage of women finish these races than men that enter. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's super interesting because even though women are better at finishing these races and in many cases beat the men time-wise as well, there's an amazing ultra runner, Courtney DeWalter, who mm. has absolutely smashed just the human, you know, record for many ultra marathons. But even though women are better at these races than men, participation is disproportionately um, uh, marked by male participation. So for example- Wait, so uh, you're saying that there's less women who participate in these things, but more of them will finish. And sometimes they can be just faster than the male counterparts. Yes, quite exactly. Wow. And so when you're looking at like, so 50 kilometers and 50 mile races are really common ultra marathon races. So 50 kilometers is like 31 miles and 50 miles is like, uh, I actually don't know that kilometer conversion. I think it's 80 something kilometers. Female participation in those races hovers around 30 to 35%. But then once you get up to 100K, which is 62 miles, the rate plummets below 25%. And so in my opinion, like this is, it is, this is something we should all be talking about because it reveals so yeah. much about our society, right? Women do these races better than men, yet very few of them do the races. And I just think you can unpack so much, right? Because you can start to think about, well, why aren't women doing these races? And in my own personal experience, I know I experienced several things that would have made me not want to do the race that when I think about if I were a man, I don't think I would have experienced. And in addition, there are many other factors that I didn't experience, but that many women do experience, such as 
being primary caregivers for their children, right? Um, and in a way that doesn't permit them to have the same exercise regimens if they have male partners. But I mean, there are tons of other factors that we could go into if you wanted to. I see. And uh, what were some of the things that um, you noticed that if I, you know, that probably wanted to stop you from participating and you were consciously aware of those things so that now you look back, you can probably think about uh, the cause or uh, that, that contribute to less women participating. I'm sure you had those experiences where, ah, I don't want to do this anymore. And that's special to you or to your gender. Yeah. yeah. Actually, in this case, I don't know. I guess it's it's uh, the right word is maybe sex. Maybe, by the way, maybe do you want to clarify the yeah. term terminology yeah. here? Yeah, I would love that. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to do that. Because I think it's important to just say that when I'm talking about women versus men, those are terms um, that describe people's gender identities. And um, a lot of the data that I've been speaking about that I've read about doesn't differentiate between people's biological sex, be it male or female, be, meaning the sex they were assigned at birth that corresponds to their chromosomal identity that's um, been derived in the medical establishment. They don't differentiate that biological identity from a gender identity, which is much a much more um, expansive and whole concept of people in their identity as it concerns to their relationship to being a man or a woman or neither of those things. So that moves beyond chromosomes and more to the way somebody perceives their own um, identity along that spectrum. Did that make sense? Yeah, so basically like in, 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 um, in a short summary, when we say sex, we're talking about more a DNA, more born chromosome XY male, mm-hmm. uh, XX female, although in rare cases you, you can have like XXY and you know, yeah. all these There's different, of, yeah, you know, absolutely. yeah. And then when we talk about gender here, um, what you're saying is we're talking about self-expression, yes, you know, exactly. so for example, I'm quad and maybe I might think about quad as a, as a, as a thing or brand or, or, uh, or entity. That's me expressing me as a quad. I, when I say I'm a male, I have lots of thoughts that goes with that. I'm expressing myself. That's gender, expression, sex, DNA. Is that a good way to think about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think when thinking about sex, it's important to remember that though that term has been really confined, um, you know, in, in meta, it's, it's a less expansive term, but we think about gender, we think about a spectrum, right? So there's a range of identities when we talk about gender that don't correspond to male or female necessarily. You know, it's like gender genotype and gender identity, you know, gender genotype, sex, gender identity, gender, that kind of a, I don't know, I just think about it more programmatically. So (laughs) that's how I remember these things. Yeah, for sure. And our gender, right, is influenced by so many different things, including our cultures and the way we're raised and, and how we as a unique individual, you know, there's no one else who's the same in the world kind of perceive our relationship to all of those factors. So that influences how we identify our gender. Gotcha. And now going back to the running, what were some of the things that um, you felt that would have stopped you from doing uh, if you, just because you were a woman, but uh, if you were a man, you would have probably not worried about them or they were trivial. For sure. 
Thanks for asking. So yeah, in this case, my gender being a woman, I identify as a woman, I present myself as a woman. And therefore, as I move through this society, I am subject to the norms that are often um, projected onto or ascribed or given to women. Um, and one of those norms that I encountered a lot in my training is a discomfort with female ambition. And I wouldn't really have called it that in the beginning because my first um, encounter with this dynamic was people in, I signed up for a 50 mile race and I just got so many comments that I had to field about, are you sure you can do this? Are you sure you're going to have time for this? Are you sure this is going to be safe for your body? Are you sure, you know, a lot of doubt centered questions. And, you know, in the first instance, I really appreciated these because I took them as really valid concerns and concerns about my health and well-being. And I always tried to interpret them with an assumption of goodwill on the part of the person um, asking me these questions. But when you're training for one of these races, you have a meticulous plan. You have set out many, many months. Um, for my 100 miler, I trained for, I think, nine months. You, you have quite enough self-doubt <laughs> to fill your doubt bucket. You know, you're trying to convince yourself that you can do this. And there's plenty of times that, you know, you have a hard training day, you set out to run 30 miles and you only get 10 done. And you're, you're thinking, gosh, I'm, I'm not strong enough to do this. So the whole process of training for on a hundred mile race is, you know, to reform your relationship with your self-doubt. However, if you then are shouldering the doubt of a society or the doubt of yeah. the people that find out about- You don't need those anymore. You, you really can't. You, yeah. can't. you can't hold them and also expect yourself to believe in yourself. At a certain point, you kind of need to turn those off. And going back to something I shared earlier, that's why I didn't really tell anyone I was going to do this 100-mile race. Uh. Because I realized if I want to give myself the best chance of running this race with joy, purpose, and meaning, which is why I want to do it, I don't need to be constantly negotiating other people's doubt or discomfort with me doing this. And that's powerful. Thanks, Quat. Yeah, that's powerful. It was really interesting when I did start to tell people because I kind of thought, well, you know what? Maybe I maybe I was wrong. You know, maybe I should have been telling people the whole time. And I did think that when I told my closest friends, because they were all like, I'm going to come help you. This is so great. Yeah. I'm so proud of you. You must have put in so much work to get here, you know, because I told people about two to three weeks before and they were right. I was working really hard and I was so excited and I felt so supported by them. But for people that found out that weren't necessarily my close friends, I got so many comments and questions and yeah. it was like I mean ranging from why don't you do a marathon instead are you sure you're going to be able to do this and you know I was prepared for it because I had thought about receiving these comments for a while and I just was focusing on you know my own abilities and what I could do but I got one comment that totally stopped me in my tracks from an acquaintance at um, the graduate school I was studying at he found out and he said he pulled me aside and he said, I, you know, I'm really worried that this could threaten your fertility. And wow. it stopped me in my tracks quad because it just, it, it connected so many dots like that, 
that one seemingly innocuous comment of perhaps what, how my gender identity as a woman is seemingly incompatible for me running a hundred miles and thinking about the way people perceive women as what, what, what our society values women for, right. For being mothers, for being capable of reproducing for all of these things that are very gendered, right. Tied to people that identify as women and how historically women have not been honored for their strength, their ambition, their, their ability to transcend previously, you know, um, their, their ability to transcend their own limits, right? That's something that culturally, I think we still need to wrestle with, you know, and think about how often do we honor the ambition of the women around us? How often do we celebrate that versus what we do for men, right? Because I think so many times I just thought about if I were a man and I said, yeah, I'm running a hundred (laughs) miles. I don't think people would say, hey, oh my gosh, is this going to threaten your fertility? No, they will celebrate. They will They will um, do the opposite almost. <laughs> right? right? Yeah. And see, this is something that gives me so much hope, right? Because if you think about, you made that metaphor of the area under the curve, right? And if you think about where we are now in terms of celebrating women's ambition and empowering them to leverage their strengths, whatever those are, right? if they're physical or, or otherwise, right? We are so underutilizing and undervaluing women in, in many societies in the world, right? And when we, you know, when we start to back women and really muscularly celebrate their ambition and strength, which has a whole range of implications from interpersonal to policy level, right? That area under the curve of, you know, just- Untapped potentials. Could, untapped potential it's just going to expand exponentially yeah by the way the uh, oh yeah go ahead no i just said and that makes me really excited because i you know when you experience these things on a day-to-day basis and and me as a woman with so many privileges i'm white i'm able-bodied i'm cisgendered i you know i i don't live in poverty you know all of these privileges and i still experience this it's it's almost unfathomable to, to think about what women with fewer privileges experience, right? But then when you when you think about that, if, if you're feeling down, like I think about what will happen when our society continues to make changes and it just gives me a lot of hope. Makes sense. By the way, the the, the guy's comment, um, I, 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 even I felt a little uh, like bitter. I'm sure, you know, he had a good intention of worrying about you, Kiri, but I don't know, but whatever the intention was, um, it does feel a little like uh, bitter. <laughs> even hearing it <laughs> <laughs> yeah and like but the thing is his comment it feels weird but then yeah. when you look at our policies right in the u.s mm. and what we value women for you look at the restrictions on things that could allow women to honor their bodily autonomy like contraception and you have to ask yourself is that comment that weird in light of things that we have put into law in this country, or is it pretty consistent? Yeah. By the way, I, I mean, we're getting straight into the contraception thing, which I do want to talk about, but um, can, can you like, since I don't only about contraception from our classes, right? Because I don't think about, I don't think a lot about contraception myself. 
right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I learned in classes about the laws of contraception, the Supreme Court cases and all these things, and also mm -hmm. available types and all these things. So, and I have a sister myself. My sister is 12 years old. And mm -hmm. I want her to listen to, you know, if nothing, just this part about contraception. Mm -hmm. So for all of those people who don't, who know so little about it, yet we hear about it from the news, right? We hear about it in political news. We hear about it in this non-health related things a lot. Can yeah. you just like give us uh, everything about contraception and what it is? Why is it important? Why do we have to know about it? Why does it matter? What should my 12 years old sister know about it? Yeah, I mean, I think, the first thing, I love that you said, what should we know about it? Because I think, even though you said, I don't think about it very often, I think that all of us should think about it, right? Because even though women currently are people, and in this, actually, I should refine. Oh, by the way, sorry, I just, just for those of you who don't know, I'm married, I have a child. Um, that's <laughs> why I probably don't think about it as often as I should do. Um, but uh, it's just uh, um, our, our family here. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, but I was going to say, you know, people that have uteruses are the ones that are able to use most of or all of the most effective mm -hmm. contraceptive methods we have. Um, there was a trial for a, um, a contraception for people that have penises or do not have uteruses and, and have XY chromosomes. And that trial unfortunately stopped due to a series of side effects mm. that some of the participants experienced. And that's a whole separate conversation. A lot of people um, commented on that, um, pointing out that many of those side effects are ones that are known side effects of existing contraceptives for people with uteruses that have not stopped those contraceptives from being approved. Got it. So it's interesting then to, to think about how gender plays a role, right? In that seemingly objective scientific approval process of drugs. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But, um, you know, your question was a broad one, like what should people know about contraception? Or I even before, like what is contraception? Yeah, for sure. So contraception is anything that people use to modulate their own ability, and in this case, prevent their own, their ability to become pregnant. And so in this case, I'm talking about people with a uterus who have the capability of conceiving a fetus inside of them. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, I think this is a conversation for everyone, regardless of um, the organs you have, because the vast majority of the world um, is sexually active at some point in their life right. and participates in a relationship um, that could be capable of conceiving a new life. And so, you know, quite our, our professor, Dr. Erica Cahill, I think sh she said, she said, determining if, when, how, and with whom to have children is one of, if not the most changing decision of a human being's life. Um, and I, I think she's right, right? Like it's whether or not you have children and when you do that and with whom you do that is a, a decision that reshapes the course of your life right yeah. in in good or bad ways right depending on the circumstances and so I think that um it's this is something so important what I also want to say is that contraception has been around way longer than I think we often give it credit for because if we think about contraception 
today, you know, we have IUDs, which are interuterine devices, and we have pills that have concoctions of hormones in them that have been, you know, specifically um, designed to um, decrease your fertility. But, you know, Plato and Hippocrates, they, you know, ancient writers were writing about the family planning methods of their day. Um, and so it's it's really, we, I think we think about it in, in its very hyper-political terms as it is today. But it, I think it's important just to, just to mention that this conversation about modulating human fertility is one that's been, that is ancient, quite literally. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think once we agree that it's a really important conversation, it's also important to say that this is a really tough topic for a lot of people because- Yeah, why is, why is it so tough? I think it's tough because reproduction is Taboo? a site. Well, I wouldn't say it's, so yes, Quad. I think part of why this is so tough is because mm -hmm. at least in the US, the society with which I'm most familiar, mm -hmm. we are really bad at talking about stuff. Yeah. <laughs> we are really uncomfortable. You know, we still, we've spent billions of dollars in the past decade on educating students with abstinence-only sex education programs, which essentially means not educating them about how to have sex, but a fear-based education program around mm. the consequences of having sex outside mm -hmm. of a marital bond, mm -hmm. um, which is something that's, you know, not based in any evidence. And um, interestingly enough, we've been able to do studies on um, on the impacts of those absence-only education models. And um, we found that they are very ineffective in delaying mm -hmm. sexual onset and promoting abstinence. And so the goals of the programs aren't even happening. And instead what's happening, what mm. we've seen is that there are higher rates of STDs and more unsafe sex. So it, it makes sense. It's like, you know, exposure, like sometimes early exposure, early teaching, familiarization with the thing makes a person handle that thing better. Right. And like, remember, I mean, I think it's also important to say here that sex is something that is so important to talk about too, because yeah. it's something that is so vulnerable and it, and it can be, it can be a source of abuse, right? If someone yeah. doesn't understand what sex is, their own rights, their own agency, that is a really dangerous mm -hmm. thing to let that person grow up in a world where they need to know those things in order to protect themselves and allow themselves to flourish in relationships that are nourishing, right? Yeah, and also like now it's a, it's a matter of chance what the first uh, trigger or first um, kind of influence is, right? Okay. If your first influence is some kind of negative source, then you might think that's that to be the norm. If it's a positive source, then that's good for you. But now it's more of a coin flip, you know? It's good to have right. a good like system to educate people and let them know about their options and what each thing is and how things work and how, you know, all that. Yeah. And like to go off of that, I think important to talk about in today's age is that a lot of young people who um, don't get to, don't have the benefit or opportunity of learning about sex from a science-based, you know, bodily perspective that is truthful and accurate and non-judgmental, right? Importantly, non-judgmental. Um, their first exposure could be porn. And we know that porn is 
almost ubiquitous in our society these days with the internet and how accessible it is. And what's really sad about that is that porn often does not depict equitable relationships in which people are honoring the other human being. And how unfair is it to let young minds shape their understanding of sexual encounters in a way that is inequitable or at worst violent? That's, it's really bad. And by not, you know, recognizing that that porn is accessible to them and just kind of turning a blind eye because we don't want to, we don't want to talk about it. Or we, you know, we think, oh, well, if we just don't teach them about it, they won't do it. Yeah. It's just ignoring the evidence and it's failing young people. It makes sense. It's like never teaching about how the society works, history and all these common sense. And then, uh, you know, um, leaving a, a young mind to just social media and world because because porn, right? It's, it's a business. So is social media news and all these things where we want people to click things and uh, we want people to consume a, a, a piece of entertainment, watch it, read it, etc. But that's 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 based on distribution that is uh, built based on uh, click me, click me, or uh, consume me, consume me, and that doesn't reflect how actual how 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 world is how world concepts or you know things are distributed right the world is not as crazy as the social media media says but but if you just look at social media it looks crazy because the distribution is based on um competition for attention mm-hmm. yeah exactly and i think when you're talking about like to bring this back to health right yeah. The best health. Oh, sorry, I, I deviated. <laughs> My bad. No, no, I'm so glad you did because yeah. it's so important to talk about these things. But when when you talk about any part of health, sexual health or other health, we would never make a clinical recommendation based on something that just someone said was a good idea, right? Yeah. We would test it. We would test it rigorously. We would do RCTs. And we have the data. But because of our you know, society-wide discomfort with talking about sex and because of the way that um, religion and cultural norms in many cases can influence our laws, like the laws and the programs don't reflect our best evidence that could promote health. Um, And in your question about like, why, why is this such a hard conversation? I think in one part, I want to agree with you that it is taboo and, and taboo things are hard to talk about in a way that that is forthright, but secondarily, I think that, you know, when you talk about contraception and you talk about abortion care, you start to bring in- um, Other stuff. Other stuff, right? Like you bring in people's religious traditions, their moral beliefs, um, things they've thought about for a while. And the, the number of opinions and stances on these issues are, are infinite in my opinion. Um, I think that, well, first I should say contraception and abortion, while I see them as very linked, I think that a lot of times um, the arguments that people use against um, contraception aren't necessarily like, there's a little bit of a disconnect because sometimes the arguments that people have against abortion in terms of not wanting to um, destroy created life. Sometimes those same groups of people or governing bodies also are against contraception, which I find a bit contradictory because the best way we know of 
decreasing the abortion rate in the U.S. is to increase contraception. So I, I, I should say that and really kind of try to differentiate these two things. But on the other hand, I think it's important if you're someone that's focused on improving the health of people, not just of people with uteruses, these things are connected, right? Because I'm really glad this also brings me to to um, the concept of reproductive justice. And I owe so much of my thinking about all of these issues from the thinking that has been pioneered by um, Black American women who coined this concept of reproductive justice, which doesn't see these things of contraception, abortion, child raising, maternal mortality, they're not separate issues. They're all part of reproductive justice. And so the theory states that people have the right to bodily autonomy, right? Which underlies all of these outcomes, to have children, to not have children, and then when and if you do have children, to parent your children in safe environments. And I think it's important to acknowledge that um, Black women in the U.S. have really put forward this um, framework of thinking about these issues in a way that doesn't separate them, but sees all of these issues as linked, right? The same policies that get in the way of people, men, women, or other, raising their children, these are just as bad as the policies that don't allow these don't allow people to choose when to parent these are all parts of the same continuum and what reproductive justice says is you should try to honor bodily agency and the ability to become or not become a parent at all parts of the process and and then i think maybe i'm is this right way to think about what puts them together which is autonomy is it's it's, an, yes. it's a very American value, you know. I have a freedom to make my own choices. I have my freedom to decide my own risks, and uh, I want that to be respected. That's a very American value, autonomy value. When to become a parent, when and how, and in what fashion, and all that, and also educating somebody so that by the time they are able to reproduce, they can make uh, a good free choice. And like, and I, I like that you brought up that you linked autonomy and independence, because I think it's important to say this. A lot of times, the reasons women have abortions or choose to seek abortion care is not, it, it's not a decision that is based on just considerations having to do with their own life. Right, right, In right. most circumstances, it is a communal decision, right? Yeah, it's a decision yeah. that woman makes out her own body. But, you know, there's this amazing, amazing study that um, was actually mentioned in our women's health class, the Turnaway study that anyone that's listening and wants to learn more should, should look up. It's done out of UCSF. I'm happy to talk about it more. But when you look at the reasons, you know, why women have abortions and, right, 66% of women that have abortions already have children, many of the reasons are that they feel in their knowledge of their own particular life experience and the the things they face on a day-to-day basis and the way they've cared for their children for however many years they have, that this would not enable them to continue allowing their children to thrive. And in a sense, that's a very selfless decision. And so I think oftentimes when this conversation is politicized, we lose sight of that because we think about women as making these decisions for themselves and 
then our fear of sex comes in too. And we say, oh, well, they shouldn't have been having sex in the first place. And all of these cultural norms kind of hop in those arguments. But I think it's important to think about women's lives as lived. And when you look at how many women live in poverty, how many women live in circumstances of abuse, how many women live in circumstances of just economic precarity, whether or not they live in poverty, maybe they're, they're just breaking their backs, trying to care for children and to make a living, right? It doesn't become a decision about, oh, would this be nice? It becomes a decision of life or death for their existing children. What would happen to me and my family and my community, you know, and this kid's future? It's it's big decision. Right. Right. Makes sense. Makes sense. So Alexis, now I want to ask you some question about uh, contraception. Uh So, So, um, when should a person or can a person start contraception? Yeah, I think that um, this is a big question because as we've touched on before, there are a ton of different factors that go into your relationship with your fertility. And so I think this is a really personal question. Um, I think that's important to say. I think that people start contraception for, it's also important to say people start contraception for a lot of different reasons that are not limited to preventing pregnancy. So for example, some people start contraception to control their dermatological conditions like acne. Um, Other people start contraception um, related to bone density issues. And some people like we've talked about start contraception to prevent pregnancy and it can be any one or a combination of those um, conditions. Another thing I should say is anemia, which is like a, we've learned about in med school, as you know, um, a condition that can, is an issue with your blood. Contraception also is used to stop anemia. So it's a very common thing that is not just used to prevent pregnancy, but to your question of like, when should someone start contraception? That was your question. Yeah. I guess I was thinking about the, uh, the contraception used for contraception, uh, but you're right, yeah. the contraception, you're right. There are many non-contraceptional um, goals for using contraception because it's, I guess the main, the major contraception method is hormonal, right? And then hormones affect many things, like you said, bone density. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, you're right. The contraception is, um, it's a way to kind of alter uh, your health goals and your, 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 your physiology. Right, right. So like you said, um, kind of an overview would be the hormonal um, methods you were talking about, which come in different forms. They can come in pills. They can come in a patch that you put on your skin, and they can come in a ring that you insert into your vagina. So um, those methods have a combination of two hormones. One is estrogen and another is progesterone. And we can talk about this if you want to, but those hormones interact with our menstrual cycle, which is the source of um, around every month having a period and, if you're someone with a uterus. Yeah, and uh, for, for those of you who are probably younger and who want to know about uh, what is what menstrual cycle is and what's happening, can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So a lot of people, um, people who menstruate, meaning people who do bleed each month or around that time, Um, know their menstrual cycle as their period, which is the time that they're bleeding, which can range between women. It can range, usually it's around two to seven days long of bleeding. And 
um, after that, there's a whole rest of the cycle that happens that contributes to what we call the whole menstrual cycle. So when we're in medicine talking about this cycle, we mark day one as the first day of bleeding. And most people have around a 28 day cycle. And so they'll bleed for the first several days. And then once they complete day 28, they'll start their bleed again, um, if that makes sense. And do you want me to go into what's happening in between that time? Yeah, that'd be great. What are, are there some phases in it? And what are some hallmarks and what's happening and how do we understand what's happening in our body? I mean, I don't go through the cycle, but how does, let's say my sister uh, think about during different time of the, of the cycle? Yeah, for sure. I think important to say first is there is so much more research that we can do on the menstrual cycle and understanding it and how it affects different bodies. And um, there's just, there's so much we have yet to learn. So everything I'm saying, I really do believe is the tip of the iceberg. Um, and a lot of it, we, we just do need more research to say more specifically what's happening at this stage in terms of the effects in our body outside of the uterus. But in the uterus, um, we have, we can think of it in, in kind of three main phases, one being the uh, menstrual phase, the bleeding phase that we just talked about at the beginning of the around 28 day cycle. And then something called the proliferative phase where the lining of um, the uterus is growing. It's um, growing in kind of the, the blood and the tissue that surrounds kind of the inside of the uterus because it's preparing to be ready in case a fertilized egg were to implant there. And so that process continues. And as it's going on, um, you have these hormones that I mentioned earlier, which are estrogen and progesterone. And then there are two more hormones. So this might sound kind of complicated, but there's LH and FSH, which stand for luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone. And all these hormones, I don't think maybe for the purposes of your audience, it's not important to go into the details of the um, ups and downs of the different hormones of the cycle, but I'm happy to if you want me to. Um, but those hormones are kind of in a really intricate dance with one another. And it's, it's really cool because it's one of those examples in the body that's rare and that some hormones can be... Um, providing negative feedback to other hormones until they reach a certain point and then it kind of switches and you have positive feedback being provided, um, which is really fascinating from a physiological point of view. And that little part where um, there's a surge that we call the LH surge, the luteinizing hormone, jumps up right before day 14, around day, from day 12 to about day 14, you have a, a rise in that hormone. And what happens is your body releases an egg to be fertilized, which is called ovulation. And so that happens right in the middle of the cycle, like I said, around day three. So, so basically uh, estrogen um, is a hormone that's going to be like, uh, you know, working, doing its job. And then in the, around the middle, you'll have this uh, surge of uh, um, a different hormone. Is that, so, what are the hormones that are um, active at different phases? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, there's a surge of a different hormone, which I said, um, LH, and there's also a rise in FSH. And those two hormones, um, they, they're they doing their job in the background before there's this levels, and they're basically causing the development of what we call a follicle. And um, the, the, there is 
I don't want to overwhelm people with terms, but when we talk about the menstrual cycle, there's the endometrium, which is the lining of the, the uterus. And then there's the eggs, which actually are not in the endometrium to begin with, right? There are things called fallopian tubes, which are kind of like, you can imagine if you put your arms out and like reach your mm -hmm. hands back and like wiggle your fingers, those are called the fimbriae at the end of your fallopian tubes. And they sit, if you can imagine, right under your two palms, like two tennis balls, right? And those are your ovaries. And those are the organs that create, that, that store the eggs and that will ultimately release the eggs into the fallopian tubes, which is the gateway to the uterus, where that endometrium is changing throughout the menstrual cycle. I see. And then... Um... Um, do does everyone you know get that uh, LH surge uh, around the middle of the the cycle or does it does is there a variability between people yeah so there is definitely variability in the menstrual cycle but the more constant part of the menstrual cycle is the um the what I'm calling I don't think I fully got to explain this because I didn't want to overwhelm people with terms but there's the endometrium, as we now know, and then things that are happening with the eggs, right, um, in the ovaries. And so we talk about the, like I said, the proliferative phase when the endometrium is getting bigger. That's a part of the follicular phase, right, at the level of the ovary, where the egg is, um, we have these follicles that are developing, and then bringing it back to the hormones, when the LH and the FH shoot up um, in their amounts in the body, around day 14, which does happen around that time for most people, um, the egg will kind of burst out and travel into that endometrium, which has now proliferated. It's now become bigger. And so then after, um, I actually should, I, I, your question was about like how variable that phase is. And it does vary. I think that is important to say. Like, I think as I'm trying to like teach this to people who haven't Heard about it. I'm trying to use numbers so people can wrap their head around it, but this is the more variable part of the menstrual cycle to my understanding. Um, and after that, if we're dividing it after the proliferative phase, we have what's called the secretory phase where the endometrium is now, it's not growing anymore, but it's, it's secreting hormones. And the main hormone it's secreting is progesterone which you can think about progesterone as keeping the endometrial lining there. And so for about 14 days after you ovulate, 14 to 15 days, this is more constant in people, the progesterone will keep your endometrium there until the progesterone amount falls. And then what happens is because progesterone was the thing that was keeping your endometrial lining there, we bleed because there's no longer the hormone that's telling our body to keep that endometrium there. And the only reason that that wouldn't happen is if that endometrium received an implanted fertilized egg. Gotcha. So basically you have uh, this cycle and in the uh, first half of the cycle, well, we say the first because the, we count the beginning as the bleeding day. We can maybe think of it that as a reset maybe. And then after that day one, the first half, 14 day-ish, the, the ovaries are 
uh, basically growing eggs. And then around the 14 day, when you get that LH surge that you mentioned, then the eggs will be uh, released and they go through that finger like thing that's going backwards, the fimbriae, the fallopian tube, and then um, the- Yeah, exactly. And something super cool here mm -hmm. is actually, they're not totally connected end to end. The fingers, like when I said, imagine you put your arms back and reach out your fingers and kind of like you're grabbing something, the fingers of the fimbriae kind of gently bring the egg from the peritoneal cavity, which is the open space in the body, mm -hmm. into the fallopian tube. That's, so I think, I think that's crazy because like the biology is pretty smart and like fascinating, right? Like all the systems, but that connection, I think <laughs> is missing of that connection. It sounds weird to me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, right. That, um, we, there are certain things we have to be aware of, right? Um, for people that are trying to get pregnant or, or who are sexually active, something like an ectopic pregnancy. Mm. Um, and that can happen, you know, on the end of those little fimbriae, an egg can implant within mm -hmm. the fallopian tube before it gets to the uterus. Or the, That's why um, that kind of precarious journey that the egg has to take doesn't mm -hmm. always work out exactly how we want it to. And, and here the implantation, can happen after sperm and egg fuse, right? And where does it happen? And uh, like, how does it work? What's the story of a sperm and egg? How do they meet? Yeah, for sure. So um, most most of the time, um, to our knowledge, fertilization will happen in the fallopian tube. And once fertilization happens in the fallopian tube, then the fertilized egg will um, travel down, like I said, kind of through your... Mm -hmm your arm structure into the uterus. And it's, it's kind of, there's, I mean, there's a, a huge, there's so many things to talk about here because we're talking about contraception and some women um, prefer to use a contraceptive method that's based on a knowledge of their cycle and a knowledge of the times when they are fertile and the times when they're not. Fertile. And so part of that method, which is sometimes they're called the fertility awareness-based methods mm -hmm. rely on when that egg gets released so that um, people restrain, people refrain from having sexual activity when they know their egg is traveling in the fallopian tube and down through their uterus. But say somebody is trying to get pregnant and they have sexual intercourse in the period, in the time of their period when their egg either about up to around five days before you ovulate, sperm can, um, because sperm can live, they can stay alive um, inside the reproductive system, uh, sperm could find um, an ovulated egg. And then once that fertilization happens, then the egg will travel down. And like we said earlier, mm -hmm. implant in the endometrium, which gotcha. has already been built up by those hormones. Gotcha. And at that time, so basically during that time, uh, I mean, when the implantation happens, the endometrium is ready, it's thick, it's ready to receive that uh, fused uh, sperm and the, uh, the egg. Mm -hmm. and, and here, um, so for contraception, so how does contraception like, affect this, this uh, fertilization story? Like, how does it stop this from happening? Yeah, super great question. So there are a lot of different types of contraception. And um, I think that I can kind of go through some main categories and we could talk about each one kind of. Sure. As, so um, one, I think we mentioned already, which are these um, 
combination pills. We also call them oral hormonal contraceptive pills. Um, and they contain, as we said, estrogen and progesterone. In addition to pills, there's the patch and the ring, like I said. And so while these are very different methods, um, they kind of all work through inhibiting ovulation. Um, so as you'll recall, ovulation is the part of the cycle when the egg around day 14 will break out, right? After developing in the follicle and become ready to be fertilized by a sperm. But if we inhibit the series of signals, which we call, this has a long name, but we can just think about it as the series of signals of hormones, the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis, we inhibit those signals through estrogen and progesterone, then we'll inhibit the development um, of those follicles as well in ovulation. And so that's kind of how those three things work, the combined pills, patch, and ring. And each one of these, even though they kind of work the same way, they're very different in how the patient would experience using them. For pills, you have to take your pill every 24 hours. And so if you don't do that, that's a source of failure because that axis is programmed to be active, that hormonal axis that's happening in, in a series of feedback cycles. And if you stop um, inhibiting it, you can have um, what's called like a breakthrough or escape ovulation and an egg can be released and then you are um, able to get pregnant if sperm enter the uterus. Um, and then the patch you replace every week. And um, also something important to say about the patch, which is also just an important conversation to be had lar more largely about birth control is um, people of size, people that weigh um, larger amounts, for example, with the patch people who weigh more than 90 kilograms have a higher failure rate with this method. And so it's important also that whenever anyone's considering birth control or any sort of medication-based birth control to have an extended conversation with your doctor or your primary care provider or um, nurse practitioner or whomever you, you seek primary health care from to discuss um, what particularities of your own healthcare situation might might make one method better for you than another. And well, it's I, I see. So, so here you mentioned the pill and then the patch, they both kind of try to do the same hormonal tricks. But what you're saying is that for pill, it's not perfect. It can fail. And if you miss your daily dose, which is, you know, if you go for a trip or something, you might forget it, right? That That's then your chance of uh, successful uh, contraception is going to go low. And then for the patch, depending on your body mass and uh, other conditions, other things going on, you can fail as well. So these are not perfect methods, right? Right, they're not yeah. perfect. They're, they're definitely not perfect, but um, they're a great option for people that are, and also I should just quickly touch on the ring. You would change the ring about every three to four weeks. And um, uh, obviously there's um, failure with that. Failure meaning the ability to get pregnant in this case would be forgetting to change your ring. Um, what I should say about these three methods, women will choose to take them even though they're not perfect because um, a lot of women experience a lot of symptoms with their periods that are really painful and really inhibit their activities of daily living. And um, th with these methods, with the combined hormonal contraceptive pills, for example, 
you can modulate the length of your bleeding and the length of your menstrual cycle. And so women are able to reduce the number of periods they have a year or completely stop having periods um, during a year, which for some women, it would be really amazing for them. And for other women, they would really miss their periods. So that's something that is really personal, like everything in the contraceptive. I see. So what you're saying is this goes back to what we started, which is contraception is something that we use to call these things, but you might want to use the contraceptional methods, basically these hormonal tricks to help you bleed less because you might have something going on or you, you have personal reasons to uh, prefer um, to, you know, uh, have a control of your physiology. So it's a, it, we call it contraception, but what it, it's basically a hormonal regulation. Is that a better exactly. way of probably think about that? Yeah, exactly. And I think we call it contraception because that is um, the purpose for which the pills were designed and it's yeah. what people mainly use them for. But I think as with all things in medicine, it's important to understand that we live in these immensely complex systems that are all interconnected in ways that makes it not surprising that you know other pathologies can be modulated through similar routes. So, yeah. yeah. Now, now, now I think about it, like I don't like the name contraception anymore because it's it's so limiting and it i don't know it's it's it has the connotation of contraception is to me is less wonderful than maybe calling it like hormonal regulated or you know yeah. give you more agency and more like a kind of you, you know what i'm saying like uh, contraception is just not a good name because it does so much more than contraception it does you're totally right and i think that is what people who have been trying to ensure that our public policies reflect um, equitable access to these medications um, are trying to also communicate in their advocacy, right? Like these are basic healthcare medications that many people rely on to live um, lives where they feel healthy and strong. And, um, yeah. Another thing is like for guys, I know some guys who take testosterone and dihydrotestosterone and all that, you know, that's like, if you say, Hey, I take testosterone, right. You don't say like, Hey, I am, um, avoiding getting bold or I am increasing this or like, you know, it's, you say you're taking testosterone. I, I wonder if there's going to be a trend where for contraception, we call it for what hormone is and how you take it. I'm, I'm doing, let's say estrogen pill or uh, this patch, you know, mm -hmm. I feel like that sounds better. Yeah. I think for some people, it could definitely sound better. I think other people might, I mean, many people are wary of using hormones in their body and that's a much larger conversation, but I think an entirely separate um, podcast conversation, just talking about hormones and the concept of what is natural and what is not natural. Right, right. But I think it's a good segue to talk about some of the other methods that um, rely um, not on hormones, but through other, other mechanisms of modulating fertility. Um, so one of those methods is the um, copper IUD. And the way that method works is it is essentially a spermicide. So it doesn't- Whoa, <laughs> that yeah. sounds scary. It does sound scary. I think a, a nicer way to say would be that the copper um, immobilizes the sperm through, um, yeah. So as you know, sperm have to swim to reach the egg. And if they can't do that, then they can't really reach the egg and fertilization can't happen. And so- instead of adding hormones to the woman's body, the copper IUD kind of creates this inflammatory environment inside the woman's reproductive tract that does not allow sperm to um, 
swim as they as they would if they were able to fertilize an egg. And the copper IUD is often preferred by women who do not want any type of hormonal contraception, but with an option that is long lasting. So IUDs are, IUD stands for intrauterine device. And there are several types of IUD, the IUDs, the main ones being the copper IUD, which lasts for 10 years and has a less than 1% failure rate. 10 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And the progestin IUD, which comes in many different brand names that you might see like Morena, um, Skyla, th- they kind of change the names every couple of years, but um, the Morena has been a- around for a while and those were approved by the FDA for five years, but recently they've done studies saying that they, they're effective for up to eight years. And the way those IUDs work is they use a synthetic form of progesterone called progestin and progestin is a hormone. So it is a hormonal method again, and it thickens the mucus that surrounds your cervix. So just a quick anatomy refresher, your, the vaginal canal is the entryway ultimately to the uterus. But before you get into the uterus, there's this donut shaped looking protrusion at the bottom of the uterus called the cervix. And in order to swim into the uterus and get up to the fallopian tubes, where we talked about fertilization occurring, the um, sperm needs to go through the cervical mucus. And so the progestin thickens that and makes a barrier. So the sperm can never get there in the first place. I see. So the, the earlier three methods we talked about, pill, patch, and ring, they are different ways to take in the hormone. These basically, these three methods are using hormonal tricks to, um, you know, set that contraception, contracepting state. Mm-hmm. And then here you talked about the copper IUD, which is a kind of a, kind of a, a, a wall. It creates some kind of a, it disables the sperm. And then mm-hmm. the progestin is also using hormone to achieve the similar effect of creating barriers for that sperm. Is that a good way to separate the earlier three yeah. and this? Yeah, that, that sounded good. And I think some other things just to say about those two things that I don't think I got to mention were that in addition to um, some of the more everyday um, ailments such as anemia and um, hard menstrual cycles that are painful, um, the combined oral pills also decrease your risk for uterine and ovarian cancer, which um, is important to say just because ovarian cancer is one of the um, more deadly cancers and often presents very late and runs can run in families. And so I, I think you might've been at this session where we heard from some um, uh, ovarian cancer survivors who gave that educational session for us. And one of them was mentioning that she, um, in her advocacy work, she's worked with women who have their children tested, their female children tested. And if they're positive for the gene, they put them on, um, Uh, oral contraceptive pills, because by decreasing the number of ovulatory cycles, you reduce your risk for those cancers. I see. So in for one of the many other effects of contraception, here's also uh, prevention of ovarian cancer. Correct. For for certain types. So another thing to, to add to this very complex and um, rich understanding of, of the effects of these drugs. And um, so now we have these uh, um, pill, patch, ring, contraceptives, and then we talked about the IUD uh, um, 
I, I can you you know think of copper IUD, copper IUD and then the progesting IUD just overall as an IUD device is that a way to talk about these things or totally yeah a lot of women um, might just say I have an IUD and they might they might they I think many women would know what type they have but it's not it's not often that you hear people going into the details of their IUD gotcha. it's definitely something people just say I have an IUD and then um, we also have I guess two more categories of uh, contraceptive methods, right? Like barrier method and then a permanent right. method. Can you get into, uh, talk about those as well? What was the second method you said after? Uh, permanent. Permanent, correct. Yeah. There's also one more I, I just want to briefly mention for comprehensiveness. Sake, yes, yes. But the injection. And a lot of times people hear this called Depo-Provera. And um, this injection is just progestin. And so this injection, and you could also take progestin-only pills, these two methods that just use progesterone, I think are just important to touch on because with estrogen, the thing about estrogen is it's very safe for the majority of people, but for people who are at risk of developing blood clots, you don't want to add more estrogen to your body. And so for patients that are seeking a contraceptive method and who are at risk at for blood clots, we wouldn't recommend an estrogen containing pill. We, we would want to also um, give them other options and, and those can be the progestin only pills or the injection. So I just want to mention that quickly. Gotcha, gotcha. This is another example where depending on what you have, what, you, what you're going through and your physiology, you might want to kind of customize your, uh, um, your hormonal regulations. Exactly, exactly. So barrier methods, um, I'm so glad you brought those up because what I wanted to mention was that all of these methods, the IUD, the pill, the patch, the shot, the ring, none of these methods will protect someone from STDs. Mm. So sexually transmitted diseases, STDs, those are main methods of preventing those are with barrier methods like condoms. And so um, the barrier methods while they are relatively less effective, um, they have, for example, the rate of people getting pregnant who use condoms as their only form of contraception ranges between 15 and 20%. Okay. Um, and then there is another type of barrier method called a diaphragm, which kind of is another way to prevent the sperm from entering through the cervix, which is that um, leading entryway to the uterus. And people who use diaphragms as the only form of their contraception have a wide range of getting pregnant anywhere from two to 23%. So again, this really just um, goes back to what you were saying, Quat, about having a lot of factors to, con to consider that um, a lot of them are very personal and preference-based, uh, what you're comfortable with in terms of the risk of getting pregnant. And um, like we talked about before, you know, there is a huge range of um, opinions and thoughts and moral beliefs and religious convictions about um, both contraception and abortion. And something I've heard from women in clinics that I've gotten to work with who are considering different contraception methods is that they want a more, um, uh, a contraception method with a much lower failure rate because they, they do not, they, they do not want to have an abortion. An abortion is something that is some, something that they would never, never be capable of doing, tolerating, something they would never, never, ever want to do. And I think that's an opinion of many women. And so 
just using a condom and thinking about a 15 to 20% failure rate in the context of not being able to provide or have a child is a risk people aren't willing to take. Makes sense. I think why people will use these other methods we were talking about before um, and weigh the effects, all the other physiological effects we talked about. However, for condoms, um, it is really important to add them to um, the contraceptive regimen that someone's on if there's a risk of STD transmission because no pill is going to prevent anyone from getting an STD. And so it's important with condoms, you know, that they're put on correctly and that they stay on. And um, there's tons of videos online about, you know, how, you know, how to use condoms and diaphragms and whatnot. And um, also, like we touched on earlier, many people do get to learn this through their schooling if they do have a sex education program, but that's really variable in the US. So um, it's something important to talk about from a public health per perspective. Um, and yeah, so those are the two uh, barrier methods. And then the last thing you asked me to talk about was the, the permanent methods. Yeah, for sure. So the permanent methods of contraception would be either a vasectomy, which would happen for people who have penises or a salpingectomy, which is the removal of the uh, fallopian tubes for people that have uteruses and fallopian tubes and ovaries. So with the vasectomy, um, it's actually pretty crazy how advanced the surgery now is because they can, providers do this thing called a no scalpel vasectomy that even avoids like- how. A crazy. big button to the skin. I know it's crazy. I was I was looking at it online after we learned about it in class, and it it seems pretty pretty like like a relatively easy, straight going surgery to do. Oh. Not really even a surgery. And I think it's important to recognize that compared to tubal removal, vasectomies are just a lot less invasive mm. and often less expensive and safer. Um, and, and that kind of makes sense, right, from an intuitive perspective with the um, biologically male anatomy being external to the body and the, the tubal anatomy being deep inside the peritoneum, right? Um, and the, the uh, very different risks associated with going in and modulating that anatomy. And so with a tubal removal, um, as people probably can can realize when you remove the tubes, the oocytes can't go into the tube and, and meet the sperm to be fertilized. And so, um, like I said, there is a risk to the surrounding structures nearby in the, in the person with that anatomy. Um, and so these two methods, again, very personal decisions, um, something that people do often when they've decided they don't want to have children ever or they're done having children. And yeah, any other questions about that? No, that makes sense. Um, not a question, but I had a friend who is uh, 40 something and had uh, two kids and uh, he and his partner, uh, his wife decided to be done with having kids. And actually he ended up, so he, he ended up getting vasectomy or some kind of, basically he said he's tying the, tying, um, I forgot what word he used, tying the tube or tying the something. I think that's what he's talking about. He's talking about vasectomy. Mm. And he did that and he came back, I think two days later from that operation and he was ready to, you know, work out and wrestle and all that stuff. So 
I, that that surprised me because he just went in, got that thing done, and then was ready to do his everyday thing. That's great. That's super yeah. awesome. So we talked about um, pill patch ring. These are you know ways to intake hormones, basically ways to pump these hormones that they carry into your bloodstream. They're different based on uh, how often you have to activate them. Pill, take it daily. Patch, you have to change it uh, every few weeks. And you have ring that lasts longer, but you still have to change. And we also talked about um, uh, IUDs. Uh, we talked about copper IUD, who creates this kind of inflammatory environment for, for, your, for sperm to kind of uh, stop working. So it, it stops sperm from getting to the egg. And we talk about progestin, which is also hormonal, but it, it's, its job is to use a hormone to kind of uh, increase the barrier for that sperm to get to the egg. So IUD, barrier. And then we, you mentioned the barrier methods, right? The condom and diaphragm. And the condom is a contraception, but it, it, maybe we can think of it like it's more than a contraception. Maybe contraception, is, it's a sub-feature. Maybe its main feature is just to protect people from bodily fluids to exchange uh, STDs, etc. And you mentioned also diaphragm, which is, uh, I don't know, like a gate, uh, a cap on the entrance to the, the, the uterus, the, the cervix. And we lastly talked about the permanent methods. We talked about tubal removal and the vasectomy um, and uh, how vasectomy can be done without even cutting <laughs> into skin. So that's pretty, uh, pretty amazing to me. Yeah. And one thing I just want to say mm -hmm. is that there, like, like I mentioned before, if you're considering getting a contraception, um, meth contraceptive method that is not, you know, something that you can just buy at the store, like a condom, it's really important to have a conversation with, um, with a healthcare provider, because there are things we just didn't even have time to talk about. Like mm -hmm. as we were going through, I realized, oh my gosh, I didn't talk about how with the copper IUD, you oftentimes get heavier periods, you get heavier. Oh. And so there's so many, there are, there are just pros and cons that it's important to just know, right? So that you can make the decision that's best for you after you weigh all of your goals for the contraceptive method and then the, the drawbacks, right? And you can weigh those in a way that makes you feel comfortable with the method you choose. And here, is it okay to say that um, I have a sister, that's why I asked this question. The time to start talking to your healthcare provider, uh, maybe it's around when you become sexually active. Is that a good time to do this? Or should you start it way earlier, like even before, um, I don't know, like knowing what sex is? Or um, So what, when is a good time to kind of bring this up? Like how, how If I'm a 12 years old girl, who do I talk to and how do I get to um, this kind of information. I know parents is helpful, but in, in addition to parents. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is, again, like, I feel like I've, I've repeated this a lot of times, but this is a topic that has a lot of um, cultural investment in many different ways, gotcha. in different cultures, in different places, in different families. And I think that if you're taking a strictly public health approach, then it makes sense for, you know, people to know about this, these options before they become sexually active. Because as soon as someone's sexually active, they can become pregnant. Right. Um, and the goal of these um, 
these tools, these pharmacological tools, is to enable people who desire to be sexually active without becoming pregnant to do so. Um, and for many other people, as we touched on, they're just other medical tools for other things going on in their body. But in terms of people trying to prevent pregnancy, you, you want to know about that and, and be able to think about, you know, the pros and cons of these different methods and make a choice when you're not stressed and thinking about, um, you know, having to do this immediately. You want to think about that beforehand. But for many parents, they, they might not want to talk to their, you know, makes sense. Um, daughter about this. And that's, that's fine. That's, that is okay. Um, like I said, I, I think that we would do, my personal opinion is that we would do better being less um, scared and fearful mm -hmm. when we talk about sex with younger people. Because I think if younger people learn about sex from role models in a non-stigmatizing yeah. and evidence-based way where they're told the truth and they're told about, you know, issues and, and problems and what they might see and online and in the media and where reality um, is not that, I think we set younger people up for more success in their personal lives for the rest of their lives. Um, and also in the short term, we set them up to understand just the risks and the benefits of of having sexual relationships and, and what they should be aware of so that they can be safe and, and healthy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And for these contraception methods, um, can I access all of these at um, pharmacy or over the counter? Or do I have to get a prescription? Who do I see to, how do I access, how do I get these things? Yeah. I want so um, the vast majority of the methods we talked about, if not all of them, you, to my knowledge, you need a uh, prescription from the doctor. It, for many of them, you need them inserted, which is a medical procedure where you go into the doctor's office and have the IUD inserted through a procedure that doesn't take more than about 10 to 15 minutes from start to finish. But you do have to go see a doctor and make an appointment. And many times that does require making multiple appointments because you'll go in for a consultation um, and talk to the doctor about which method and they might schedule you to get an IUD placed at a later time. So it can be something that um, takes longer than a quick in and out pickup. Um, we didn't talk about emergency contraception, but this is a type of uh, contraception that you can get at pharmacies um, that is used kind of, it's kind of what it sounds like as a last, um, a last, last minute, like yeah. a plan B. Is it, this is the, this is what's called plan B or others, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. And, um, it works. We don't have to go into all the details of how it works, but it essentially can be used, um, up to around like, uh, three-ish days after intercourse happens. It's more effective. Usually the earlier you take it, um, because earlier in the cycle, you'll be more likely to prevent um, ovulation from occurring and or fertilization from occurring. Um, but you take the, the pills and you can buy those pills at the pharmacy. Um, but other than that, the, the longer term contraception methods, the IUDs, the, the pills, the patch, the ring, those are things um, to my knowledge that you do with a, with a physician. Makes sense, makes sense. And um now completely changing the subject but so what do you what, what, 
I feel like I learned a lot in the uh, this this block, this reproductive health block, and I was also very surprised to learn that the male uh, reproductive organs, the the glands to the tubes to the structures, they have a lot of similarity. I mean, they have almost one to one mapping to the female reproductive organs, and I, and I was surprised to see that that closeness. And um, what did you think about that? Oh, I think it's so cool. I think it's really cool because um, you're right. Um, there is a, a one, almost a one to one between. Yeah. Um, it's homology. I think that's the the like more formal word for it. There's homologous structures between the stereotypically biologically male structures and the biologically female structures. I think it also helps remind us that both sex and gender are not binaries, right? Because at any point in the development of these genital organs, when, when a fetus is developing in, in the uterus, things can happen developmentally with the same building blocks, right? Where you get a different outcome. That's not your, the stereotypical um, male genitalia or stereotypical female genitalia. So I think it, it's also, it also helps me remind myself of just the immense diversity that exists in um, in genitalia. Yeah, I remember seeing that picture, the the range of natural um, the organs, and it, it was amazing. The, the 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 structures, and I was just amazed how um, it's it's very simple to just say XX female, mm-hmm. XY male, but if you look at you know, how many receptors do you have? Do you have androgen receptor? Do you have this? Maybe you have extra, you know, all that. And you, you can see how the phenotype can be very different. Yeah. Um, that made me very um, like humble because previously I probably had a more of like, a, okay, it's probably near binary, right? Like um, that kind of a thinking. But then looking at that you know, range of phenotypes, natural phenotypes and range of uh, outcomes, I, I, was, I was humbled to see that. Totally. And um, I think it's, it's just, it is, I love that you use the word humbling because this type of diversity is just, it's something that is so, you so cool and something to celebrate, I think, in our species. And I think we can look forward to um, continuing to become more celebratory of that diversity and not um, seeing it as abnormal because really what happens in nature is normal, right? Those are natural outcomes. Those are very normal outcomes. But I think oftentimes in medicine, we have a tendency to, we like groups and we like binaries and we like normal and abnormal. And to be able to think about, wow, how cool is it that this is different than the majority? That's really cool. And that's something we don't need to change or fix if it's not hurting someone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. By the way, Alex, um, I know this is a new podcast and I know that uh, we just learned this. I also know that this is a very charged subject, especially now it's 2020. Mm-hmm. And I really like applaud and respect your courage to just boldly and just speak about all these issues. I know this is, you know, some people might think about it like, oh, there's a lot of uh, minds and things you don't want to talk about. They don't even want to use the word gender, sex and all these things. Mm-hmm. And I'm just amazed how you just went at it. <laughs> Well, there are bodies, right? And yeah. I think that we do better when we're not scared of them, but when we are curious about them. Yeah, and and you you were just like, I think 
you, you talked a lot about so many different things covering from like cultural stuff, legal stuff to the, the contraception, maybe in the, in the future, you know, there can be another uh, section session where we talk about like all these hormones and stuff in detail, but I'm just like thankful for you to, you know, share all these thoughts on all these charged subjects. Um, and I, and I like how your, your attitude is, is yeah, you can be charged in different contexts, but you know, we're, we're going to look at them as, uh, um, organs and human body. We want to talk about them without fear, and we want to educate people and let them know information, so that they're more familiar with it and they make good decisions. Totally. And I think the other thing is these conver- It's it's important to say like these conversations can be really hard. Like yeah. even if you're someone that really thinks you know one way or the other, you're gonna have people in your life that disagree in in really emotional and and sometimes moral ways about these topics. And I think as much as we can, to your point, to just not have fear of talking about these things with people we disagree on them with, regardless of, of where you stand, right? But to, to really work hard to find the things, the goals we share, because really across all opinions on these, like you said, charged issues, there are so many things things we have in common that we don't often talk about or see in the media. We all want our children to be healthy. We want our children to grow up feeling good about themselves and their bodies. You know, we want to live in a world with less poverty. You know, all of these things are our goals we share. And I think starting with that and then working towards, well, look, like, look what we learned from this study that this awesome group of researchers spent you know, five years doing because they cared about this goal we share. Look what we learned, you know, we can approach it that way because th- this stuff is too important. Not, yeah. not by the way, Alex, um, I know, like, I think the first good interaction I had with you was in our, uh, you know, the journalism class. Oh yeah. You know, um, and uh, I think, I really think that uh, you should, I don't know if you, what you want to do in the future and stuff, but I think you have good like charisma you, like talk about these things and you want to you you can have people listen to it and you also have a really good way of like uh kind of uh, uh guiding the conversation and uh um just like communicating information to different people and especially from this podcast I'm, I'm just amazed and i think i really hope that you do something that's that gets like some rather than just working in the basement with the research etc i want you to like get in front of people and just like, you know, do your thing. And I think a lot of people want to listen to you. I, I, that's how I feel right now. That's so um, nice of you to say quiet. It's that's true. Cool. Yeah. So do you have any like uh, thoughts about your future and the things you want to do? Gosh, like, I think, I think we'll have to see because I think the world changes all the time. Yeah. And the, the things I care about, which we talked about some of them today, I really care about, um, I care about women, um, largely speaking. I care about women's health. I care about um, women's agency in their family lives, in their work lives, and their ability to have children and not have children and, and manifest what, what they want to give to the world. I care about the environment. I, 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 love, I love thinking about um, working one day with people that are not only focused on um, healthcare work, but also who are concerned with the laws and the regulations that prevent us from doing things that could improve people's health. So I, I get excited about 
um, thinking about work that is not only in the doctor's office, because I, I really can't wait to be there, but also collaborating with other people um, to try and, and make laws and policies that create a juster world for us. You, you have, you have like just too much love, <laughs> a lot of caring love. I can feel that. Thanks, Scott. It's true. We need a probably new governor. Maybe you should run for that too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, Alex, we talked about a lot of stuff. Thanks for uh, being the early victims of this podcast. You're welcome, Quat. Again. Your podcast. No, you know, I, I like to talk about these things too. And it's a good way to kind of learn about people because like how often do you talk to your classmates for, I don't know, we talked for three hours now. Yeah. Great. So. It's so true. You know, yeah. like we, we see a lot of people every day at school and, you know, but you interact with them for like, what, three, five minutes, right? Yeah, absolutely. You don't get to, oftentimes I think with medical school, you don't get to scratch below the surface and it's really exciting to do that. Yeah. So again, thank you so much, Alex. You're so welcome, Quat. Hope your rest of the, I guess, one more week left for this quarter. Hope it goes well with you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your everything. And I hope you have a good, good holiday season. You too, Quat. Take good care. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Alexis. It was a nice conversation and I really respect her, her, you know, passion in this subject and uh, the way she talked about so many things. Um, And finally, before you go, please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so. And please let your families, friends, colleagues, classmates know about the podcast and rate the podcast on the you know, iTunes or, or wherever you listen to podcasts so that um, I can make the podcast even better. Anyways, have a good rest of the day, week, and holiday season. And I'll see you in the next episode very soon. Bye.